So we had earth and water and fire element, comes the air element. And what is the air element? The air element can either be in oneself or external. And what is the air element in oneself? Whether whatever in oneself, belonging to oneself, is air, airy and clung to, that is to say, upgoing winds, downgoing winds, winds in the belly, <laughs> winds in the bowels, winds that parade all the limbs in and out breath, or whatever else in oneself, belonging to oneself, is air, airy and clung to. This is called air element in oneself. Well, we know the air element to be the breath, we know that, and the winds in the body, that's the air element. Now, air element in oneself <coughs> and external air element are simply air elements, and that should be seen as it actually is with right understanding. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. When a man sees it thus with right understanding as it actually is, one becomes dispassionate towards the air element and fades lust for the air element out of the mind. Well, it's exactly the same uh, paragraph and the same words that we use for the other elements that as soon as we see ourselves objectively and can see these things as just as they are, we will not have so much identification with it. At, at this point we're thinking this is my breath and this is um, my body and when we see that it's nothing but the elements, eventually we can see that it isn't so, it isn't mine. Well just like we don't call the wind out there mine, why do we call the wind that goes in and out mine? Just because it happens to go into the nose and out of the nose? Now it's mine? But when it's not going in into the nose and out of the nose, it's not mine? What's the difference? It's the same air, isn't it? The wind there, the air around us. We don't pretend that this air in this room belongs to me. Anyone doesn't pretend that. We don't pretend that this air here is mine. Nobody has this idea. And yet the air that goes in, that's supposed to be mine. And yet it's exactly the same air. And something not quite right with that kind of idea, is it? And just everybody thinks that way. And because we've been thinking that way for a lifetime on end, we also feel that way. Because thinking is also a sense contact. It's a sense consciousness. And all thinking, being sense consciousness, produces feeling. So now we feel this is mine. We've been doing it long enough. Nobody has said anything to us about it that it wasn't so. We see everybody else is thinking the same way and feeling the same way. But if we could be dispassionate, which means objective, completely objective, we must admit that there's no compelling reason 
to call this breath that goes in and out mine because it is no different from the air around us it's certainly no different from the wind out there or from the wind that just happened to go through here for one and the same and if we do start thinking differently eventually we also feel differently and when we feel differently we can make an end to every problem so when we have right understanding we won't say that this is mine this is I, this is myself we would not do that and we become quite dispassionate there is an occasion when the external air element is disturbed it sweeps away villages, towns, cities, districts and countries there is an occasion in the last month of the hot season when one seeks wind by means of a fan or bellows and even the strands of straw in the drip fringe of the thatch do not stir it's very interesting these things because it gives us an idea what the uh, um, life and the uh, the shelters were like in those days now the drip fringe that's where we have our um, rain um, what do you call the, the rain spouts the, uh, the, sorry? The guttering, yes. The guttering, that's the drip fringe. And the, the roof was made of thatch. So the, uh, there's a little fringe hanging down from the thatch. And that's where the rain drips down from. And then there at the, at, in the hot season, that, these little uh, fringe of the thatch, it doesn't stir because there's no wind at all in India it's so hot and so when one seeks wind by means of a fan air conditioning or bellows and nothing stirs so there's no wind at all and then other times there's so much wind it's monsoon, typhoon or whatever one might like to call it that it sweeps away houses and people and uh, like what happened in Darwin and Christmas Day I think it was 1960 something or 68 or something the whole town just felt to bits like a house of cards because um, there was such an enormous um, uh, typhoon at the time so the air element the external air element can become uh, very disturbed for even this external air element, great as it is, is describable as impermanent, as subject to destruction. It doesn't appear, so it's destroyed. As subject to disappearance, as subject to change. So what of this body, which is clung to and lasts but a while, there can be no considering that as I, me, or mine. So the Buddha again gives, or sorry, Buddha rather, gives the uh, similes of the air element disappearing out there and being totally disturbed or having a complete disappearance. And we think that this air element within us, which is also very short-lived, that has to be something special. 
It is all divine to see oneself with less identification, intoxication, with, with less subjectivity, with less thinking that there is somebody special there who has certain rights and certain wishes and certain um, hopes and, and ideas which ha- should come true because if we think of this body as being just those four great elements then what is it that would promise us anything? These elements are quite strong at times at other times they don't exist now the fire element can be extremely strong when we have bushfire and other times it's very very uh, subtle everything gets quite cold there's very little of it there it's the same with us so all this is ourselves so what do we make such a big deal out of everything why don't we just be part and parcel of the whole now there's another aspect of the um, of the element which is mentioned here actually there are two more elements which the Buddha sometimes mentions and in this case he mentions one more space and he only gives a very brief mention of it just as when a space is enclosed by timber and creepers grass and clay there comes to be the term house this is how one used to build houses timber and creepers grass and clay so too when a space is enclosed by bones and sinews flesh and skin there comes to be the term form so here's the other element mentioned the space element the space element which is everything everything is space there's no nothing in the universe that isn't space and also the uh, the sixth um, sorry the fifth jhana is that is infinite space so if one has been in the fifth jhana one knows that there is really nothing else except space and the buddha says that's all there is but when we enclose the space like here we get a room when we enclose this space we get a person all of a sudden you've got a person but actually what's been done is just having the uh, the, uh, the bones and the sinews and the flesh and the skin and then that's a person then all of a sudden so if we could look at ourselves a little more dispassionately and less with that idea that we have this special place in the whole of the universe we would find life much easier because our demands upon uh, life and our demands upon others would either be eliminated or very much um, lessened because the other one, the other person are also earth water, fire, and air, and space. And ourselves are the same. So what do we expect? It's 
expect these elements to do something wonderful or something great and they're supposed to have appreciation and praise for us and we are, I mean, the whole thing is absurd the way we look at things. It's so clear that if we were to use this kind of insight method and use it in the meditation and this is a point I've made before and I'm going to make it again and I want to make it very emphatically if the concentration does not lend itself to going into a very concentrated state for heaven's sake do inside meditation it brings concentration a little bit of insight brings brings the calm a little bit of calm brings insight it doesn't matter which way around one does it if the mind is talking telling stories let it at least tell a very interesting story, one that is useful, namely about the elements, or let it tell a story about the parts of the body taking oneself apart. Anything that will produce some insight, or let it tell a story about impermanence, but don't let it tell stories about the future and the past, because the future and the past, they don't exist. They absolutely, completely Figments of the imagination. The past is gone, and they, it, it is a memory which is always impaired. It's never true. Nobody has true memory. And the future is a hope and a prayer. And one can't live with a hope and a prayer. One's got to live with what is now. now. So if the mind is doing that, which is naturally life to do, likes to think of the past and likes to think of the future, uh, then bring it to something like this, to looking at the element in oneself, because it's all very well to hear this, and it's all very well to even to agree to it. Say, oh, yeah, very interesting. Five elements, very interesting. And then what? What good does that do? So we have, we have consists of those elements. And that's the end of that story. It has absolutely no uh, impact unless one has seen it for oneself. That this is, this is actually all there is. Bits and pieces. And bits and pieces are either, as we heard here, earth element or water element. They're either solid or they're watery. And that's all these bits and pieces. But check it out and see whether it's true. Maybe you find something that's different. Maybe you forgot something, the Buddha. Who knows? Just check it out. Well, this isn't the Buddha anyway. Sorry, Buddha. Maybe you forgot something. Check it yourself. It's the only way to actually come to a realization which we can call wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight are two words which are meaning the same thing in Buddhist terminology. Insight and wisdom are the same thing which means one checks it out for oneself and sees it and says, aha. And then, having seen it more than once, many times, it becomes part and parcel of one's own uh, recognition. Not just when one sits down to meditate, but one recognizes it many times. And eventually, one has such recognition that it doesn't fade away anymore, that recognition. The beginning, it comes and it goes, obviously. 
which is fine. But the first step has to be taken. The mind which is not concentrated enough to go into any of, of the absorptions. That's fine. Do that. Insight. It's, it's not insight is not second class meditation. There are two directions of meditation. One is insight and one is calm. Yeah, these are the only two in, uh, directions. Discursiveness is not meditation. Discursiveness is the opposite of meditation. So it's either insight or calm. These are the two. And sometimes the mind can easily go into a calm state. It's um, very difficult to find out sometimes why it's easy at some stage and other times it isn't, but then use the other times profitably for this sort of thing, checking it out. It's very interesting also. You can't find this sort of uh, meditative procedure anywhere except in the Buddha's teaching. It's extremely interesting to check oneself out against these elements and see, yes, well, there isn't anything other than that. So space is actually all that there is. Now, that's also an interesting statement. We'll check it out and see if it's true meditatively. And the only thing that happens is that some parts of space are enclosed by something. And then we get, if it's bark, then we get a tree. And if it's skin, we get a person. And if it's, uh, in the Buddha's time, timber, creepers, grass and clay, we get a house. Now today it's bricks and timber and it's uh, some plaster or a burny board or something like that. And we get a house. Now these are the, the five elements. There is another one, which is the consciousness element. But he's not mentioning that here because he's having reference to form. And these five are connected to form body, or any form, house, tree, cat, dog, whatever, form. So these five are form, and consciousness element is connected to mind, but he's explaining mind in a different way. So we are, what we have in this discourse is we have the elements, five of them, and we also have the five khandas. The five khandas, of which the first one is body. And he's particularly making reference to the sense consciousness. Well, in the, before, in the uh, earlier um, part of this, he was talking about the ear context. Now it comes to the next thing. If the eye, in one's, this eye here, not the me, this eye, if the I in oneself were intact, but no external forms came to its threshold, and there were no appropriate conscious engagement, then there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness. Interesting sentence, isn't it? <laughs> it means only that if this eye is okay, I mean, otherwise we're not blind or, or have, can't see for the, at the moment, 
but there's nothing to see. No external form came to the threshold of consciousness and there would be no appropriate engagement. In other words, although we have our eyes open, there's nothing at all to see. So when there's nothing to see, then there's no engagement of the eye. Then there would be no appropriate class of consciousness. In other words, no seeing. The eye is okay, but there's nothing to see, so there's no seeing. That's all it says interesting sentence isn't it if the eye in oneself were intact and external forms came to its threshold but there were no appropriate conscious engagement there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness now if the eye is okay right and there are external forms to be seen but one doesn't focus no seeing it's possible, for instance, where some people meditate with their eyes slightly open and it's, it's quite good for some people who easily get tired, put their eyes down to the floor but don't focus on anything. They don't see anything, but the eye is open and there is something to see. There is the floor to be seen and the eye is quite okay, but still there's no seeing. Okay, that's what this means. But it is owing to the fact that the eye in itself is intact, that the external form comes to its threshold and there is the appropriate conscious engagement that there is manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness. Sometimes these sentences are really something. So that means it's the third possibility now. The eye is okay, there are things to be seen, and we look, we are actually looking at it. So the consciousness, the eye consciousness, this one here, the eye consciousness is engaged. That's when seeing occurs. So what is being said is that you need three things in order to see. You need the eye to be okay, this eye here. You need something that can be seen, some eye object is usually said, it's an eye object. And there has to be eye consciousness. We must focus on something. And when we have the eye base, the eye object, and the eye consciousness, then we can see. So we need those three things. So the forms come to the threshold, and the appropriate conscious engagement, there's manifestation of that class of consciousness. The uh, conscious engagement means that we are actually alert. It's quite possible that one walks along the street, and it has happened, I'm sure, to everybody, that one walks along the street and somebody comes, and we don't even see that person, and later we are told, you know, why didn't you say hello to me? And say, I didn't see you. So that particular moment, the consciousness of the I, the seeing consciousness, was not engaged. We never saw that person. Now, the reason the Buddha is explaining this, and of course the same, yes, the same is being said about all the others. The ear, the nose, 
the tongue and the body. Ear, hearing, nose, smelling, tongue, tasting, body, touching. Right? Says it about the whole, exactly the same thing said about all of them. Now, and the same as said about the mind, but we'll first go on the way it is said here. Now, whatever form of what has come to be thus if included in the form aggregate affected by clinging, <clears throat> whatever feeling of what has come to be thus is included in the feeling aggregate affected by clinging, whatever perception of what has come to be thus is included in the perception aggregate affected by clinging, and whatever mental formations of what has come to be thus are included in the mental formations aggregate affected by clinging. Whatever sense consciousness of what has come to be thus is included in the consciousness aggregate affected by clinging. Now, what here the five aggregates are being listed. Start out with the body. The form is always body. <coughs> Just another another word for translation of body. Because the word rupa is uh, used for everything that has form, not just for the uh, human body. <coughs> and then feeling, perception, mental formations, and sense consciousness. The word consciousness here means only sense consciousness, namely that what has just been described. Is that clear? The I consciousness. Where, they, where we are in actually alert, awake and aware and are actually able to see, which we can do with all our senses. That's the sense consciousness. The sense contact may be there, but the sense consciousness does not have to arise. As I explained when somebody is meditating and looking down with open eyes and doesn't focus. There can be a loud noise and if one is really meditating, one doesn't hear it. So there, the ear consciousness is not engaged at the time. So the five aggregates are, con this, this actually the fifth one, which is always the first one in the mind, is that sense consciousness. Buddha takes it apart and analyzes this in bits and pieces, just like he has analyzed this body into the elements. So he's now analyzing our mental uh, aspects in the same bits and pieces so that we can become a little more um, distant to this person which seems to give us so much trouble, the person that seems to be so important which is the middle of everything and the center of our own universe and we can't imagine that the universe could exist without it because it's quite true. If we're not there, we wouldn't know that the universe exists. So the whole thing seems to be centering on this one person, and yet the universe is immense, isn't it? So he wants us to take a little step away from it and look at it in a little more analytical and detailed manner, which was one of the hallmarks of the Buddha's teaching. Now you see that with, with the jhanas, with the calm meditation, the Buddha entered into 
what are usually in those days also, but maybe not the word used, but are usually called the mystical realm. But here he is completely concerned with a rational realm of thinking. The two have to go together. It is the rationality which is, um, gives us the understanding and it's the, um, the tranquility and the um, mystical element in the meditation which gives us the unity and the unitive effect. So the uh, rationality which we're talking about here is called insight in the Buddhist terminology and <coughs> it is the, the um, goal of, of the teaching and the, the absorptions are the means. Because all this, while it is logical enough to say, to agree to, it's meaningless unless we can actually reduce our ego consciousness enough to feel this. And for that, for that we need the absorption factors because in the absorption we can't have an ego, we can't, can't get absorbed otherwise. Of course it comes right back, but at least we know that without an ego, life is, um, our level of consciousness is much preferable. So these are rational explanations which are so um, different from the way that we look at ourselves that it takes a bit of um, new thinking. And this is what a mental genius is. It's a totally new thinker, has new ideas. So we have these four aspects of the, of the mind are the four mental khandhas starting with the sense consciousness. When the sense consciousness does not arise, in other words, we are not conscious of essential input. We are not conscious of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or thinking. Then we don't get the appropriate results either. We don't get the appropriate feeling from that. We don't get the appropriate perception from that. And we don't get the appropriate mental formation. The sense consciousness does not arise, which is exactly what happens in the absorption. It always says, secluded from sensual desires, the first sentence about the absorption. At that time, we can't see, hear, taste, touch, smell and think, because if we do, we can't go into the absorption. We can luckily do only one thing at a time. So at that time, the sense consciousness is not arising and we can, from own experience, say it's much nicer without it. And as we can say that and feel that and know that, we can also become aware of the fact that these khandas, <coughs> which are here said affected by things, are not such a wonderful translation. Yeah five kandas of clinging is usually what it said. These five kandas of clinging are not 
desirable. The first time that we can see that from our own experience when we are without them and are within the meditative absorption that they have no place in that, obviously. Any one of these four has no, has nothing happening from them. So they are, then we find out that they are really not desirable and not in the way we have always thought. And as we find out that they're not desirable, we can also then quite rationally and dispassionately investigate why we think we own them. They are not such a wonderful thing to have, so why do they die? Why do we think they're mine? And in those four or five, we could say, in within those five khandas, the ego illusion arises. That's why they're called the five khandas of clinging, the pancha upadana khandas. Because within those five, that whole ego illusion arises. And if we didn't have the Buddha's teaching, we could say, well, of course, that's how it has to be. We think, we feel, we perceive, we smell, we taste, we touch, we hear, we see. So what else is possible? Well, we know from our own meditative experience there is something else that's possible. It is possible, even if we've only tasted it for a moment yet, there is something else possible. And so it isn't necessary to think that these are mine. Or by the same token, of course, we mustn't then go overboard and think the jhanas are mine, but I don't know that anybody really thinks that, because we know they're hard to come by and they do disappear again. That is the only danger, that instead of owning the khandas, then one owns the jhanas. Well, because one wants to own something, it's got to have something. So, and that is a danger. But uh, maybe it's a, uh, even slightly, uh, slightly more desirable to own the jhanas, but it's still not <laughs> what the Buddha is after. So, what we're seeing here, uh, he's saying that whatever has, has come to be thus, and that refers to the previous paragraph when the eye consciousness was explained. The, as there is an eye, as there is an eye object, as there is the eye consciousness arising, so it has come to be that the sense consciousness is there, that the feeling is there, that the perception is there, and the mental formation is there. And because, in the, and the form which has come to be thus refers to the element and the enclosure of space. So all these things have come to be thus because of the things that have been explained. Is this quite clear, all of this? Or is that otherwise I... Yes, no, half clear? Yes, clear, okay. Anything not clear about that? Or uh, a concentration is also mental. Uh, it's uh, the, uh, uh, the disaggregate. 
Concentration is a mental formation, but it is not due to sense consciousness. Here is being explained everything that's due to sense consciousness. But mental concentration is not due to sense consciousness. In the in the jhanas, we have no sense consciousness, right? We don't have the the seeing, the hearing, the tasting, the touching, uh, the uh, um, and the thinking. We don't have any of that and the smelling, right? So because we don't have the sense consciousness, we don't have the appropriate feeling, perception, and mental formation which follows the sense consciousness. Certainly we have concentration, which is a mental formation, but it hasn't followed a sense consciousness. We don't have that whole process which is mentioned here, right? We only have that one thing. And we can see that this process is by far not as desirable as what we can get in the absorption. And that's why not only the rational, logical understanding of this is necessary, but what is necessary is the personal experience of it. Okay? Yes? You can, but it would be better if you didn't. <laughs> I mean, for perfect jhana, you don't. But I don't expect perfection. I'm quite happy when it's 50 or 60 percent. In a perfect jhana, you don't hear anything. Even, even on the first one. Eventually. Eventually, the first one becomes um, very um, habitual and so the, um, the hearing, well, if it's a very strong sound, yes, you would hear it. But the um, ordinary sounds you don't get interested in. You see, it's just like not seeing the floor when you're meditating. You keep your eyes open. You're not focusing. So you're not focusing on those sounds. So they don't have any impact. If it's a very strong one, yes, it would. You know, somebody broke the glass or something, or you know, or the bird hits the glass with a strong sound, you would hear that. You can't help it. But the focus isn't there. Right? Now, the person understands that this it seems, is how there comes to be inclusion, gathering, amassing into these five aggregates affected by clinging. So this is a, like an understanding now that because of the way this operates, everything gathers into the five aggregates. And so it has been said by the Buddha, he who sees the pent origination sees the Dhamma, he who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination, and these five aggregates affected by clinging are dependently arisen. 
The wish for reliance on the approval or acceptance of these five aggregates affected by clinging is the origin of suffering. The removal of wishing and lust, the abandoning of wishing and lust for them is the cessation of suffering. And at this point too, friends, much has been done by such a person. So, we have seen how from the sense consciousness the rest appears. We have seen how from the elements, including space, our idea of body appears. We have seen how our mental reactions appear through the sense consciousness. The sense consciousness appears because there is the eye, space, the eye object, and the eye consciousness, and the same with ear, and so forth. And as we see that, we can say quite uh, clearly, this is dependently arisen. There is no independence. The uh, feeling arises from the sense consciousness, the perception from the feeling, the mental formation from the perception, and so on. From the mental formation comes a new feeling, comes a new perception, comes a new mental formation. It's constantly dependently arisen. And as the Buddha says, this is a very famous sentence, he who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, and seeing the Dhamma means that one sees it within oneself as the only truth left. Not in a logical, rational way, or in a way of repeating sentences, but seeing oneself as that, as the Dhamma. Seeing the pend origination, one sees the Dhamma, and seeing the Dhamma, one sees the pend origination. If, one, if we see Dhamma, Dhamma means the law, or na- law of nature, we can see that all what we are and all what we know has all arisen depending on something else. Now the house has arisen depending on bricks and stones and so forth and, and timber. The body has arisen depending on bits and pieces, also on craving to be and so forth. And as we see that, that it has arisen dependently, all this, what is the person, then we also can understand that we are relying on and we want approval for and the acceptance of these five aggregates and that brings us suffering we're relying on that on this body with its uh, senses and the uh, result of the sense consciousness and this reliance that we have and that we want to have approval of it we want to have approval of this body and of this mind we want to know that we are good looking clever intelligent, pleasant, all these nice things we would like to be approved of and we want to at least be accepted. So what are we looking for? Approval of what? Acceptance of what? Of the five aggregates which have have arisen dependently. We are looking for approval of the the five elements including space and we're looking for approval of the four mental aggregates which arise because or we can see something or hear something. That's all there is to us. Now that needs investigation. And the mind which is calm in meditation has the ability to do that 
without resistance. Now, if we don't have the calm for the meditation, we would most likely feel resistance to this because we don't like to be reduced to just elements and aggregates. We don't seem important anymore. But it's much easier not to be important, I can assure you. To be important is dreadful. Everybody's looking for it. Everybody wants to be important. There's nothing worse than that. So the um, understanding that we are only aggregates and elements takes a sting out of everything. So somebody else is not nice. So which aggregate is not nice? Which element isn't nice? What does it matter? Some elements have got together and some aggregates have got together and they don't look good anymore to us. Or some, we, we want somebody badly. We really have to have that person. So which element do we have to have? Which aggregate is so important? It all becomes smooth and easy if we can remember. But before we can remember this, we've got to meditate seeing it in ourselves. If we don't see it in ourselves, we'll never see it in anybody else. But the other great advantage which it brings is also when we see it in ourselves and in others, we don't feel separate. We don't have to have any particular person. Everybody is, is the same aggregate from the same element. There isn't anybody different. The only thing that's different is that some people use their aggregates differently. And some people use them absolutely absurdly. And it, they don't make any sense in the end. But most people use their aggregates in the same way. There are always a few that use them a little differently. And sometimes, and sometimes those that use them differently, we think they're crazy or they're genius. One or the other. And they use their aggregates differently. Either they're genius or they're crazy. But that's all there is to it. Most people use the aggregates in exactly the same way. So that's what is being said here, that when we see that they have arisen at the same moment, that that which is dependently arisen is dependent upon conditions. And conditions cannot never be reliable. They're always changing. So no person can be reliable. The, the body can disappear any time. It can have parts of it cut off. It can have parts of it uh, broken. It's never reliable. And the mind, nothing is more unreliable than the mind. It's constantly changing. And if we haven't noticed that yet, we better take, take some notice of that in the meditation. It's constantly changing. So, because all of this is dependent upon conditions, there isn't anything that we can rely on. Now, we, the only one that we can possibly rely on one day are we ourselves. If we've got beyond believing in, in ourselves as a single person and have seen what it really means to lead a spiritual life and to go the, to the end of the spiritual path. Then we become reliable at the end. But 
to rely upon conditions which are always changing because they have to, conditions have to change, is putting our, our whole emphasis on quicksand. It's always moving and we're drowning in it. And that's why nobody really finds total satisfaction within the worldly life. Even though it has been made to, people are made to believe that they can. And people tell long stories how to do it, to find satisfaction in the worldly life and become quite famous doing that. It's not possible. It's all conditioned. And if we really want to know this is what we need to investigate. This is a, in the Buddhist teaching in depth and really taking a human being apart. But when we see that and accept it, it is such a relief. Such an enormous relief. Because we can see that everybody and everything is one and the same. We don't have to be anybody special. It's wonderful. We don't have to prove anything. We are already what we want to become. Now, if that isn't wonderful, I don't know what is. We already are everything we ever want to become. We just have to let go of all the ideas we've got. That's all. The center point of spiritual life is letting go. So then, our wish to rely upon these changing conditions our wish for approval and acceptance is the origin of our suffering. Now at least we know where the problems come from. Isn't that nice? Now we know. Now we know why we have problems, because we see things wrongly. Now the removal of wishing and lust, the abandoning of wishing and lust, is the cessation of suffering. Now that's a big word, because Buddhist terminology, cessation of suffering, means enlightenment. So what does this mean? And this is the typical of the discourses, that they start out with a very, um, very simple explanations, actually, and go all the way to enlightenment. Cessation of suffering mean, is another way of expressing enlightenment. So what does enlightenment mean here in this uh, sentence? the removal of wishing and lusting for, the abandoning of wishing and lusting for the aggregates and, in, well, just for the five aggregates. That is cessation of suffering. So that means if we see ourselves as the five aggregates and have no longer any wish to own them, to be me or mine, and the lust, the desire, for their uh, uh, approval and their acceptance and their special um, specialty as being me has been let go of, then there's no suffering. How can an aggregate suffer? How can an element suffer? An aggregate of an element can only suffer if we think it's ours. Now, if 
If I own this house and all that belongs in it and somebody comes and steals it, all the stuff, I suffer. But if I just happen to sit here and somebody comes to steal everything and I don't own any of that, would I suffer? It wouldn't make the slightest difference to me whether the stuff is in the house or outside of the house. I couldn't care less. As long as I own it, I suffer. When I don't own it anymore, there's nothing nothing to worry about. It just is. And it doesn't matter whether the robber owns the stuff or whether the stuff is in the house. It makes no difference. And this is the cessation of suffering. Now, sounds simple, doesn't it? Enlightenment is not simple. But it must be simple enough to understand so that one can at least know the pathway there. That it isn't an easy thing to do is caused by the fact that it has done exactly the opposite over and over again. It's not easy to change the mind around totally. And we don't change it around in one go we have to do it gently little by little it's 180 degrees turned around so we we gently nudge it over and over that's why one has to keep on practicing practice is not a one time affair if one keeps on practicing one gently nudges the mind until it has eventually turned around 180 degrees and sometimes it's like a stalled car or like a stalled truck one can't push it any further. It seems to be stuck in the mud. Well, that too happens. Those things, they, uh, in Christianity, the dark night of the soul, stuck in the mud, in my expression. <laughs> Same thing. Now then, the, uh, the rest of this, uh, a sutta is what I, what I have already said that if the ear and the nose and the tongue and the body um, are intact and then there are external things and there's no consciousness nothing happens but if there is consciousness then one either has um, a sound or um, one has a, a smell or one has a taste or one has a touch and then it says and if the mind in oneself were intact but no external dhammas came to its threshold. It's, excuse me, it's dot dot. I have to find the right Came to its threshold, and there were no appropriate engagement. Then there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness, and so on. Now, it, the same thing applies to the mind. See, now if the mind is intact, in other words, we have a working mind, right? Um, but no ideas come. External dhammas are ideas. In this case, dhammas means phenomena, external phenomena. The ideas or it can also be the result of having heard, seen, tasted or touched or smelled something. Also then comes an external dhamma to one and one has a mental reaction. 
but one can also have the ideas in the mind, also an external thing. The mind in itself is peaceful, pure and bright. That's all it is. But when the external things happen, then we have ideas. And so when we have ideas come to its threshold, but there is no engagement, otherwise we don't pay any attention to these things, then there's no thinking. But if it's intact and and the external Dhamma come to its threshold and there is the conscious engagement, in other words, there is an idea and we start thinking about it, then there is the thinking starts. So we have with the mind exactly the same thing as we have with eye, ear, nose and body and taste the mind as the base, the idea as the um, external thing that comes to its threshold, and the engagement of it which starts the thinking. So that is um, the sixth of our sense consciousness. And because it's also a sense consciousness, it also produces feelings. And as it produces feeling, it produces perception, and it produces mental formation, and it produces feeling, it produces perception, produces mental formation, and we go round and round the mulberry bush. Again and again and again. It goes around and around and around. If we don't make a conscious end to it. Now, a conscious end we make to it through the meditation. And that's why the spiritual path without meditation is... Um, an impossibility in terms. I mean, there's no such thing. A spiritual path without meditation doesn't exist because one has to make an end to the sense consciousness at some time to realize that there is something else. Otherwise, one can never find out that there is something else and one sees that only that and nothing else. So that is what the Venerable Sariputta said. The Bhikkhus were satisfied and they delighted in his words. And that's the end of this sutta. Now, you have any questions? This is the time to ask them. How the how the mind operates as a sense contact also. Yes. Now the mind itself, we could actually well the Buddha says the mind. I have sometimes said the brain is the base. Um, the mind as its base, as the base, just like the eye is the base. This is a seeing base. So the mind is the thinking base, right? That's the first thing. You have to have a base. And then, as to the mind comes, uh, sorry, as to the eye comes an eye object. This is the eye object at the moment. Now, if I actually look at it, then I have eye consciousness, which means seeing. So I have this and this. They meet. The consciousness is there. And so I'm seeing this. 
Now, that could be there and that could be there, but I'm not looking at it. So, I may just be staring into space. So, I wouldn't be seeing a thing if I'm just staring without looking. Now, with the mind, it's the same thing. The mind is this base. We can't see it, we can't touch it, but it's a base. We know we've got it because it's as troublesome as anything. So we must have it. Whatever else is making so much trouble. So then with that we get a thought might come in. Now if we don't pay any attention to that thought, no thinking ensues. It's just like this thing here, and I'm not looking at it, so no seeing ensues. The mind may not want to be disturbed. It doesn't even know that the thought has arisen. Just as I wouldn't know that this is there if I'm not looking at it. I may infer it's there, but I may not know that it's there. I'm not looking at it. But now when the thought arises and the mind engages, conscious engagement, then thinking happens. So that is then the um, consciousness, the sense consciousness which belongs to the mind, thinking. The sense consciousness which belongs to the eye is seeing, to the ear is hearing, to the mind is thinking. That's the sense consciousness. So there again, the base has to be intact, the external element, the external Dhamma has to arise and one has to consciously engage into it. Is that clear? Okay. Does that go any further as it does with the other senses? Sorry, what do you well, mean? Well, up to the point of where you react to... Oh, sure. So it's just a thought, exactly the same sequence. Exactly the same sequence. From the thought comes the feeling, from the feeling comes the perception, from the perception comes the reaction. That's the round around the mulberry bush I just said. It goes round and round around. Because the thought produces a feeling. And then with the feeling comes, ooh, that's terrible, or whatever reaction there is. And from that reaction comes another feeling and another, another perception, another reaction. Exactly the same sequence. And that's why we have to be very careful that we keep our um, thinking on a level of uh, wholesomeness because otherwise the unwholesomeness increases. The more often it becomes unwholesome, the worse it gets. In the end, we may, we may think that a person who has looked at us sideways is actually trying to kill us because we have made the mind go in that direction. It gets worse and worse, stronger and stronger. That's why we have to be so careful with the mind. Is that clear? Yes, it is clear. Um, but people generally interrupt that sequence and don't let it get, don't let it build up. I mean, it doesn't go on for any... Um, You'd be surprised. <laughs> You haven't been teaching meditation courses for <laughs> 16 years. There's going to be an end to it. I mean, the same thought process doesn't go on forever. 
No, 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 I didn't mean that. It's not the same thought process. It's like this. The mind is there, and the external Dhamma that comes in says, uh, this person is not looking at me nicely. That's a thought, right? From that there comes an unpleasant feeling. Okay? From that unpleasant feeling comes a perception. Perception that that person doesn't like me. Okay? Now with that we already have a mental formation which says I don't like her either. Now I'm down to mental formation which says I don't like her either. The next feeling is stronger unpleasant. Now the perception is I always knew she wasn't nice. Alright, that's the next perception. Now comes the next mental formation, the next reaction to that. And all her, all her friends say the same thing. They, nobody likes her. Then, nobody likes her, now comes again the new uh, thought, with the new feeling from nobody likes her, comes, it's even worse. The unpleasantness is even worse. And this goes on and on until at the end, you never talk to that person again. <coughs> no. Not necessarily. Why should there be an end? It goes on and on and on. Discursive thinking goes on so uh, goes on all the time, including in the dream. But that doesn't change anything. That doesn't change matters. <coughs> The only thing, the only way to stop it and to interrupt it is through meditation. Now you could possibly say that you can interrupt it because you've got to attend to your business. But people know notoriously, um, have notoriously difficulties even with that because while they're disliking this person and they're trying to attend to their business, they're still thinking about how awful that person is. And then from that awful person come all the other awful persons that one has met in one's life. And in the end one feels very sorry for oneself because one is such a nice person and all the other people are so dreadful and one is really having the wrong end of the stick. And it goes on and on and on. And that's how one lands in hospital with a depression. One has to deliberately stop it. And meditation is one way of stopping it and the other way is mindfulness. These are ways of stopping it. But it has to be done with some understanding. Now, some people have natural understanding that this is ridiculous to keep going like that. Some people don't. And they get worse and worse and worse. It's not everybody that knows I've got to stop this. This is no good for me. In fact, I would say that most people don't know. Unless they've been trained, they've had their minds trained. Most people's minds are in a sad state because they don't do anything about it. The meditative path and the Buddha's teaching are the uh, way to stop that kind of sequence. It doesn't stop by itself. It starts in the morning when one gets up. Source. What do you call the source? Oh, 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 um, before, at least before the reaction, the first reaction. Oh. Well, if one is mindful enough and has enough insight, 
to realize that the thought is only a thought and not the truth, sure. But don't you know, 99% of mankind believes in their thoughts. Everybody believes what they're thinking. And that's why we have such a tremendous mess. Because people just think and they believe it. It's a meditator that eventually recognizes the fact that one doesn't have to believe all that. It's totally unnecessary. And that one can keep one's thoughts either on a level where they're non-disturbing or use thoughts only when one needs them. One doesn't have to use them all the time. Oh, sure, of course. Wherever you can interrupt it. When you've noticed the reaction, that's probably the um, uh, strongest moment when you can see, now I'm reacting to this thought, which in the first place wasn't a very good one, so now I'm getting an unpleasant reaction out of that, and I'm actually, it's very helpful to say I'm actually a fool making myself unhappy. It's one of the best things one can say to oneself. But not everybody has that kind of courage. When one can say to oneself, I'm a fool making myself unhappy, and mean it, it's extremely effective. It's um, Usually somebody else will not say that. The Buddha did, but it's, uh, you know, most people don't want to hear it. But if one can say to oneself that, very effective. Certainly one starts at the reaction, yes. And one has to work a long time with that before one can come to the point where one can stop it before the reaction. But that's very good, even that is very good. Anything else? Yes, sir. You don't have to be, the mind doesn't have to be engaged with the thoughts. Well, well, I guess the, the only way to do that would be mindfulness. Would be? Would be mindfulness. Mindfulness. Uh, yes, that would be the way to do it. Now you have two possibilities. Let's say that a thought has arisen and you can be mindful of the fact that the thought has arisen and that you're really not interested in it and you can drop it again. And that's fine, that's one way. And the other way is in the meditation. You don't have to pay any attention to it or when you don't pay any attention to it from the start, you don't even know it has arisen. Mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yes. Of exactly what the body is doing and exactly maybe of the feeling that is arising, even exactly the thought that is arising, but not starting to think about it. 
then then there's no uh, un, unhappy or unpleasant reaction because mindfulness takes care of that. There's nothing you can do about the thought itself. I mean, there's no way of stopping thoughts from arising. Only if you're completely concentrated, you don't know it. But just as the body breathes, so the mind thinks. You can by not paying attention to it. In other words, when you're completely concentrated in meditation, you wouldn't know the thoughts are arising. Right? Now, if you're completely mindful, you would know that the thought has arisen, but you don't have to engage yourself in it. Right? The mind can also be at rest outside of meditation. But then that is its um, mode of um, engagement. It's engaged in being restful, peaceful. You mightn't call that a thought, you might call that a mental state. It has to have some sort of state. It's got to have something. <laughs> You'll have to have it. <laughs> you have to stop thinking, Tom. <laughs> You'll have to stop thinking and just pay attention to the inner being which is at peace. There's no need to think all the time. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there must be, well, I'm trying to think of what's the best way to to try to do that. Mindfulness. Mindfulness. Mindfulness of everything that arises the best way to not to get engaged in thinking. And as you then become more and more practiced in the jhanas, you can be at rest also outside of the jhanas. It's not the same kind of peacefulness, but it certainly is also restful and peaceful. And it doesn't go around and around and around and around and around on thinking. Yes, but then if you are becoming mindful of the fact that you are thinking, that stops it effectively. Now, of course, the next thought arises, huh? I don't know how quick your thoughts are. <laughs> 3,000 in the blink of an eyelid. Well, why don't you just watch with mindfulness exactly what's happening now if you see something Watch how, what you're doing with that. Seeing, feeling, perception, reaction. Watch that process. And then you don't have to think, you can experience it. Hearing, feeling, perception, reaction. You can you watch that, become very much aware of this process of the four mental conducts. 
is very interesting and, and, and doesn't include all this, uh, you know, proliferation of thinking. Try that, okay? Anything is worth trying, huh? <laughs> Instead of thinking. <laughs> so much thinking. Right, well try these two things. Try seeing the body as elements, try seeing all other bodies as elements, take it apart into the five elements that were mentioned here, including space, huh? and then see the aggregate working, the mental aggregate working, from the sense contact to the mental formation, which is the reaction. Now this, I do want to mention that, again, I have already uh, touched upon it. This is a meditative procedure which can be done in meditation or outside of meditation. It is very important to become uh, really acquainted with the working of those four mental aggregates. It's very important. Now you can do that outside of meditation, you can do it in meditation. Outside of meditation gives you a clue how it, ha- how it really happens, and in meditation you can become more deeply and profoundly um, imbued with the fact that this is all that happens. And when you know that this is all that happens, Eventually, there's complete dispassion towards this person. There isn't anybody, there's just all that happens. And then, of course, there's an enormous relief because of that. But first, outside, you, uh, outside of meditation, you become aware of this process, which is in itself interesting. And then in meditation, it goes deeper. Hmm? And very important, this is the, the most important method for insight. The four mental aggregates. This is, takes pride of place. Okay? All quite clear? Or totally muddled? <laughs> yes. Break them up. No, you, you don't can't you can't break them up. All you can break up is your ownership of them. That's all you can do. They exist, they are. Just like the elements are, so the aggregates are. The problem is that you own them. Yes. With the, the mind, you, you, you see these four parts of the mind separately. It's difficult enough. The sense consciousness, the feeling, the perception, which gives it the name, its labeling, and the reaction. You see those four parts separately. Just like you can see the 32 parts of the body separately, you can see those four parts of mind separately. Seeing meaning that you're experiencing them. And that you do outside in order to get a no- knowledge of the process, and then you can do it in meditation, 
to see that whether there is anything else happening. And you can use thinking at the same sense consciousness. If you were to use thinking, you'd probably find it quite interesting. Thinking as the the conscious engagement of the mind. That's the first step. The conscious engagement of the mind is called thinking. And then comes the feeling, and then comes the labeling, and then comes the reaction, and then comes the feeling, then comes the perception, and then comes the reaction, and that's how we go round and round and round. It's very interesting. Try it outside meditation and try it in the meditation. That's the breakup of the four bits and pieces. Anything else? Put the attention on the breath for just a few moments, please. Open the door of your heart and see whether there are any hindrances there. Hindrances like ill will, anxiety, restlessness, worry, doubt. And if so, let them float away like a black cloud. Now visualize a warm golden light containing peace and love. It enters through the top of your head and fills you completely.
feel the warm glow of love, the calm feeling of peace. Now think of the person sitting next to you. Fill and surround this person with love and peace. Let him or her feel the warmth. Now let this golden stream flow from one person to the other and fill and surround all the people in the room. Feel the lightness of the stream. Let it fill the whole room. Now think of your parents, whether they're alive or not. Embrace them with this warm golden light containing love and peace. Now send this golden light to the people dearest and nearest to you. Let them feel the warmth of love.
don't ask anything in return give as much as you can the more love and peace you can give the more you've got think of the people you meet every day people at work neighbors people in the streets acquaintances fill and surround them with love and peace Now there might be someone whom you don't consider a friend. Someone you have had an argument with. Open your heart to this person. Try to understand him or her knowing that this person has the same dukkha as we have so forgive and forget and send him or her his golden light full of love and peace as well
there are many people who are not as fortunate as we are people in prisons people in hospitals people in refugee camps children dying of starvation think of all these people and send your warm light to them pervade them with love and peace 